Welcome to episode 128 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. One hundred what's one? Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? So for some reason, <laughs> what my mouth wanted to say there was to advance our episode catalog by 20. So I, I wanted tell. to say 148 for some reason. Yeah, we, we're not there yet. We'll get there. Oh, we're coming for you. It'll take us a half a year. We're coming. So Jesse, big news. Yeah, this is we we got some big news actually. Yeah, we have go some ahead. huge news. So Jesse and I are going to be producing what I'm calling a series of progressive audiobooks. So basically, what that is, it's a term I made up, but what it is is just we're going to read <laughs> books and record it and put it out as a podcast. So we've started doing some recordings. Um, we're calling it the public domain. So we're going to do readings in class, like classic Christian thought. Um, and we're going to do books that are in the public domain. So that way we don't get sued. So that's good. Uh, and we added a K to public to make it a little more reformedy, uh, like the public directory of worship, stuff like that. So I'm super excited. So we've already got a couple sessions uh, up in the hopper and loaded. And we're ready to launch this bad boy on March 25th. This is a lot of fun. We hope it'll be a blessing and it'll be edifying to people. Maybe get some exposure to different types of works that you might not have heard of before. Yeah. So so check it out. You can uh, go to domain.reformbrotherhood.com um, and you can find the episodes, which will be live uh, starting on March 25th. There'll also be a button to subscribe via RSS. Uh, it'll be loaded up into iTunes and everywhere else you can find podcasts. Um, and we're going to release, for now, we're just going to do two books concurrently. So we're going to release one on Monday and one on Friday. Jesse, what are you reading for your first book? So I'm reading through this amazing track called A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. Yeah, I've never read that, um, but listening to your sweet, dulcet tones read through the first <laughs> section, uh, I got to admit, like, I was pretty convicted about my prayer life reading, uh, listening to the, the track as I edit it. So um, check it out. I'm reading The Antidote to the Council of Trent, so it's a little bit yeah. more technical. But uh, one of the perennial issues, especially kind of as we're entering into Lent uh, now, which is kind of the high... Uh, the high holy days of the Roman Catholic calendar that the evangelicals want to seem to adopt for some reason. Um, but after the council of Trent, uh, John Calvin just, just eviscerated everything about it. Um, and a lot of Protestants who struggle with kind of answering Roman Catholicism have never even read it. Um, and it, it really is all of the kinds of things that we struggle to answer. Calvin just kind of like brushes off because they're just no big deal. He just cuts through all of the noise and all of the extra sort of like pomp and circumstances of the Roman system and just tears it down. Um, he goes like section by section and just destroys every argument that they're making. Um, so that'll be live um, and it's going to be good. And we're going to also set up once we get a few more uh, sessions under our belt, we're going to set up a form on the website. So if you have a book that you believe is in the public domain that you would like us to look at, um, we're not just limiting it to reform sources, but patristic sources. Um, J.C. Ryle is a 19th century um, or 18th century. Yeah, 18th century. Right. Yeah. 18th century Anglican. Um, he was a reform guy, right? Right. 
Yep. So, um, so we're wide open to a bunch of different sources. Um, so make some suggestions. You might just hear what you're looking for uh, on the show. Yeah, this is like podcasting at next level. I love this I idea because if there's like the what you're reading, like antidote to the Council of Trent, that is something that many people might not want to tackle on their own by way of actually reading it. But to have that in the background, either on your commute or while you go for a run, who doesn't want to listen to Calvin being read to them with your sweet mellifluous voice while they're <laughs> while they're making PRs and they're running all over the place. So yeah. I just think it's a really great kind of fun experimental idea to kind of get access to some of these really great works that are out there that are available for all of us. But I mean, we don't have, we only have a limited number of resources and time to consume material. And there's right. so many things I wish I could read. And so having somebody present these in a way where I can listen to them, it's just really fa fascinating and I think wonderful idea. So next level podcasting, that's what you get from us. Always yeah. next level. Yeah, and I think one of the coolest things about our new show is our new logo. No doubt. Yes. So I uh, reached out to Paul Cox, who we talked about last week on the show about his Kickstarter for uh, the Pilgrim's Progress uh, Poetic Journey, and asked him to construct a logo. And what I told him was, I would like a logo that is John Calvin reading a book that says the public domain with a microphone on it. And what he put together was just amazing. So um, you'll see the logo on the website. Check it out as soon as uh, we get it up and going. Uh, he did a great job. And this is just a reminder, you know, we talked about his Kickstarter last week. Um, he still has a long ways to go if he wants to get this published. So if you haven't had a chance to go over to Kickstarter and search for a Pilgrim's Progress, a poetic journey, uh, and donate a little bit of your cash to uh, the, the cause, um, I would really like to see this thing get funded um, because I think it is uh, it is a book that really belongs in the library of every Christian family. Um, and I think that unless we come together and help him make it happen, that it might not happen. Um, and that would be a, a really sad thing if this uh, beautiful work of art was not able to get out into the public. Um, it would just be bad. So go ahead. If you fulfilled your obligation to your local church uh, and you feel the spirit leading you, go ahead, go over to his Kickstarter and give him as much money as you can spare um, to help him get this thing out there. Yeah, everybody go out and help a brother out because he's making this classic story really accessible both to children and adults. It's a really brilliant idea. And he's a really great brother. And you can even watch yeah. a little video on the Kickstarter where he gives you kind of a presentation. He's a funny dude. He's a good guy. So yeah. I, th I think everybody would enjoy just kind of getting to see his face and his vision for this project. I have no doubt that you'll find him winsome and that this book in particular will find to be really a brilliant expression of faith, both for, for every age. It's worth your time. Even if you don't, if you're not sure if you want to give, go and check it out because I think yeah. you'll find the project very interesting. Yeah, it's good stuff. And it, like I said, he's just such a talented artist. Um, he does such a good job with all the characters, the illustrations. So I would love it if you could go over and uh, just help him out. And tell this him that like, the Reformed Brotherhood sent you. Yeah, tell him that uh, you came from <clears throat> us. Because this is like right now, this is like the all book podcast. It is. We're doing bookcasts again. Yeah, we just talked about the new podcast, the public domain reading books about yep. Paul Cox. This amazing book that he's putting together based on Pilgrim's Progress. And... It is bookcast week. It is bookcast week. It's almost like you and I like to read. <laughs> I mean, it's I, it's I I don't know for sure, but I get the sense that we like we're kind of like bookworms. Yeah, or book nerds. Yeah. So you usually uh, have sort of an outline of the chapter that we go through. So why don't you kick us off and get us started here? 
I do. So if you've been tracking with us, we're reading Joel Beakey's Reform Preaching, and we're just three chapters in. So that means if you haven't got a copy of this book yet, you can go out to WTS in particular, find a copy there, grab it, and you can easily catch up. Uh, but of course, you can always look up these episodes and track with us. But we're getting into chapter three, and it's entitled The Major Elements of Reformed Experiential Preaching. It, the, only will you get titles like that in like Reformed works. It sounds I know. like. <laughs> I know. Joel Beakey is such a Puritan at heart. I'm expecting there to be a chapter that's like a discourse on the proper use of experiential preaching in the life of a Christian, particularly the Reformed Christian in the 21st century in North America, but not not isolated to also known as major elements of Reformed experiential preaching. Uh, the Puritans never met a word they didn't like. I know. So, what I think is interesting as like a way of kind of setting context for this entire chapter was the definition that he gives again to reform preaching. So we, we've talked a little bit about preaching writ large. He's defined some terms for us. And now he's kind of taking this funnel and kind of pulling it into a, kind of a tighter focus. And yeah. so I want to start with something that he says, because this was meaningful to me. And I think on the face, it can seem like a very obvious statement. But I think where he's where he goes with this in the chapter is really worth discussing and unpacking because it sets the whole course for the rest of his writing, at least in this particular space. So this is what he says about reform preaching. He's saying there's preaching and now he's saying, but there's a reform type of preaching. And this is how he describes it. He says reform preaching is declaring biblical truth to promote biblical spirituality as it was rediscovered in the Reformation of the 16th century. And yeah. what I want to talk to you about was just how precise this definition is, that there's this idea that he seems to really want to focus on this concept that there is spirituality. And when we see biblical spirituality, or just the word spirituality by itself, I think we're prone to kind of put, uh, put it in within the rubric of Christian spirituality to begin with, as if there isn't any other type of spirituality to talk about. Right. And I think that goes against, in some ways, what the scripture says in terms of Paul giving the warning, you know, to test everything, test all spirits, because one of the things that Satan is really good at doing as the deceiver is to give a spiritual impression. So when he's talking about this type of specific preaching that leads to biblical spirituality, I found this to be an idea that seemed very simple on the face, but really had deep roots. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, as I'm working my way through this book, it's sort of a good companion uh, volume to uh, Recovering the Reform Confession by R. Scott Clark. Because one of the things that I think we haven't highlighted too much as we've worked on this book so far, it hasn't really come up as much, is that um, there's a particular strain of of Christian piety and practice that R. Scott Clark is calling people back to in Recovering the Reformed Confession. And a part of that is, and, and I would say what, what drives and motivates that is reform preaching. And so R. Scott Clark is looking at from a kind of a technical element of like, what does it mean to have a reform piety and practice? And Joel Beakey is coming at this as saying like, from the pulpit, this is what ministers are going to have to do to motivate their congregations right. to embrace this vision that was rediscovered in the 16th century in uh, the reform movement. And, you know, we've, we've talked a lot, you know, I joke about like Lent being all about Roman Catholicism, but in like, in reality, that's, 
that's kind of the movement that we've found ourselves in is that there's this, there's this understanding that is starting to grow. Um, we need to get less Lamphier on the show for his, uh, new movie coming out spirit and truth, but there's this movement that started with the young restless reform movement. And now that all of us who were in the young restless reform movement, I don't think you were ever really part of that movement. You kind of grew up in the reformed world a little bit more than most of us did. But for those of us who kind of came back into reformed theology through the sort of uh, new Calvinism, right. the young restless reform movement, we've now sort of matured past sort of the cage stage of that. And now we're rediscovering this vision of what, what it means to be a Christian that was, that really came to fruition in the 16th century under people like Calvin, the Westminster Divines, the Puritans, um, Zwingli, Knox, like that branch of the Reformation. And now we're starting to try to figure out like, okay, so how, how now that we see this vision, how do we understand, how do we get there? And Beaky is saying here, reform preaching particularly is the way we get there because it communicates right. God's truth in a way that's faithful to the Bible that pushes us towards that. I don't want to say minimalistic in like a negative sense, but minimalistic in the sense that there's not a lot of accretions on top of, uh, on top of the simple worship of the Bible that, um, that we see in other traditions, even in something like Lutheranism or Anglicanism, which are definitely Reformation traditions, but haven't, haven't stripped away back down to the pure sort of simple biblical worship that we see in the New Testament. Um, they haven't really gotten there. And so the Reformed tradition has peeled away those layers. And what he's saying here is that preaching has to be the, the sort of bedrock of that. Um, a lot of times we think of like personal, personal Bible reading as the bedrock of that, that like if we really get into the scriptures ourselves and we really understand the scriptures ourselves, then we'll get back to that understanding. But in reality, in the Reformation, most people couldn't read. And so preaching was the way that people heard the scriptures and the, the foundation of that movement and that stripping away of all these extra biblical things, that was reform preaching. And that's what Beaky's really calling us back to. Right. It's as if he's really emphasizing that the kind of reformed tradition emphasized from the beginning a kind of simple and direct piety that right. was expressed in practice, but was unvarnished in the sense that it wasn't showy. And, you know, there's always a good reminder that the reformers, like the ones you just mentioned, Luther, Zwingli, you know, Bollinger, Calvin, all these guys, first and foremost, they were preachers. We right. tend to think of them first and foremost as theologians, as people who are really consolidating and synergizing and synthesizing all this information for us to download. But the only reason they were so passionate about that is because as preachers, they wanted to see that information applied in people's lives for holy living that was intensely practical and was the kind of living that was best taken place in the kind of private closet. You know, that is, it didn't need to be demonstrated. It was best manifest when you were all alone, the, the content of your heart, the quality of your thoughts and actions. And so that's, I think, really interesting what he's driving at, because I think you're right. True to form, like the pendulum of kind of the reform community swings both ways. And there is that middle spot, but we tend to go, of course, with the momentum of which way it's swinging, it always overshoots a little bit. And there's a kind of a coming back to this sense that, oh, maybe Reformed theology isn't just about knowing a lot of great stuff and being able to articulate things with a lot of precision and to win arguments, but it's about right thinking that leads to right living. And yeah. so there's a lot of emphasis on that here, that there is a spirituality that all of us have because we are created both body and soul. And the question is, well, what is your spirit like? And he's really driving at if basically if you have all this 
head fancy book learning and you do not have biblical spirituality, then you are, are really not a Christian. And then to your point, well, then how do we get to the place where we know that we are living spiritually in a way that's biblical? And his argument is that really only comes from preaching and actually a specific type of preaching, which is reformed. So yeah. it's a really an interesting argument because again, I think it seems like, well, of course, like, yeah, it's straightforward, like whatever, but he's really driving at saying, no, no, you need to take a look and think about how you're living and how we get there. So he really focuses on two things. He talks about preaching reformed truth. And again, he says something that I think is articulating the obvious, but he goes far deeper. And I think this is worth discussing. He identifies in preaching reformed truth, two core elements. It's preaching Christ and preaching God's sovereignty. So right. obviously as reformed people, the latter of the two is one of the things that we can like ring the bell on because they're all about God's sovereignty. What did you think though about this idea of preaching Christ and how central that is, how he presents this concept and why it is paramount to preaching reformed truth? Especially, well, let me ask it this way. What do you think the difference is between preaching the doctrines of Christ and preaching Christ? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the difference for me, and I think, I think what I pulled out of this chapter is it's the difference between preaching about Christ and preaching uh, in a way that offers Christ to the listener. Um, because I think that's, you know, when you think of the really good sermons that you hear, um, the ones that, that make you want to stand up and cheer or the ones that kind of reduce you to tears because of your, you know, because of uh, the gravity of your sin, the ones that actually connect with your heart, they're not the really, um, they're not disconnected doctrinal um, sermons, right? Every sermon should have doctrine in it because the scripture teaches doctrine and we're commanded to teach the scriptures in season and out of season. But the ones that are just doctrine, those end up being like, oh, that was a nice sermon. Yeah, I learned a few things. But right. the ones that truly, truly present Christ and offer Christ to the listener, that's what I think he's getting at when he says preach Christ. It's not preach preach doctrines about Christ. Do that, but you have to go the step further and say, this Christ that I'm preaching of, he is he is for you. He he is for you. And he Christ is dead for you, to borrow a phrase, I think it's from Samuel Rutherford, um, one of the Westminster divines. He would say, Christ is dead for you. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the, the Christ is risen for you. Is, it comes along with that. But the point is that even even though he knew there were people in his congregation, or I shouldn't say he knew, he it, he had a reasonable certainty that there were people in his congregation that were reprobates, right? Every congregation right. is a mixed body um, for the most part. He still could say without irony and without his fingers crossed, Christ is dead for you. If you so much as will believe, then Christ is dead for you. And so I think that offering of Christ to the listener is really the key at what Dr. Beakey's getting at. Yeah, there's definitely in preaching Christ a certain power that does not exist in the doctrines of Christ. And that may be extreme, but where I'm going with that is that when we preach in Christ, there's an invitation for union with him. Right. And that's what gives us that only comfort in life and death that the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about in the first question. And that question is actually quoted in the text. And as I'm reading that, there was one particular phrase that really jumped out to me that I think illustrates that power of preaching Christ as opposed to just preaching the doctrines of Christ. And that is, there's a sentence that says, all things must be subservient to my salvation. Yeah. That's like an amazing and incredible guarantee that all things become subservient to the salvation that Christ has provided to us when we have union with him. 
So that's like everything in life falls underneath that. It's not just in the sense that there's like this hierarchical ranking, but in the power of salvation to be over all things because it is granted to us by Christ in union with him. So that is like really set apart and distinct from just saying, well, here are some things about Christ or here are some things that are related to Christ and what he said. We need to be preached Christ. And that's a big distinction because I think when we start evaluating the things that we consume or even... I think we need to walk away from this chapter also thinking about how do I talk about Christ when I'm I'm with my brothers and sisters or when I'm explaining who Jesus is to somebody who is not a believer. We need to be preaching Jesus and not just hear things about him, that God is love and that God is all right. Those those things are all true. But what is needed right then is to be preached Christ. So I think that's like a really, that distinctive really jumped out to me because it, it caused me to evaluate how I think about Christ and how I think about how I process sermons when I'm hearing them. Yeah. This quote really jumped out to me. Um, Let me see how much of I want to read. He says, we must call and command men to come to him. We must allure sinners to him by preaching Christ in his beauty, sufficiency, and mercy. Offering Christ to sinners is never an appendix tacked on to the end of the sermon. Proclaiming Christ is the heart of experiential preaching. The preaching of Christian experience is always subordinate to this goal of offering Jesus Christ and him crucified to sinners. And I think that that's really key is that, um, you know, when I think about the times that I've been able to go into the pulpit, um, there is sometimes this feeling of like, I get to the end of the sermon and I remember all of a sudden, like, I haven't preached the gospel. Like that's, that's easy to do for people. I mean, I'm an, I'm a super inexperienced preacher and, and I wouldn't even call what I do preaching on a technical level, but it's easy to get through a presentation of something from the scripture, whether you're preaching from the pulpit, whether you're sharing the gospel or sharing from the scriptures with a coworker um, or answering it, like answering a question that someone gives to you. Like if you're interacting with a skeptic online or something like that, it's really easy to get to the end of your presentation, whatever the context is and realize that you never got to the gospel. Like you just didn't get there. You never offered Christ to this person. And what's the point of doing a debate with a skeptic online if you never get to the point where you offer him Jesus. And so I think sometimes we wonder, why is it that I don't see converts? Like, why why is it that I can share my faith? I can share from the scriptures. I can quote unquote, preach the gospel to all these people around me. And I don't see... I don't see fruit being being born all that often. And I, I wonder time, at times, is it because I'm not actually offering Christ? Do I, do I just not get to that point? And I think that that's kind of the clarion call here is that a lot of times we preach the Christian experience, right? We tell, we tell people about yes. what Jesus has done for us. Right. We tell people about um, how much he loves them, how much he wants to save them, but we never actually... It's confrontational, right? We talked about that when we recorded at Salt Hill Pub. It's confrontational. The gospel and the, and evangelism is confrontational, and offering Christ at some level is confrontational. Like you're you're offering Christ, and there's a point in the conversation where the person either says yes or no. There's no. There really is no. Um, I'll think about it because I think I'll think about, we used to say this, uh, when I was in sales, when I'd sell computers at Best Buy and you know, your manager will walk up and be like, did you close the deal on that? And you'd say, oh, well, he said he'd be back later. And we'd say, oh, he's on the be back late, the be back bus. That's never coming back through town. 
Like, unless you close the deal, you have to assume it's a no. And I don't want to treat the gospel like it's a sales pitch, but there's a certain principle to that that's true. Like you, you, you either close the deal or the person has said no to the gospel. Like right. they don't walk away having not said no. They either say yes and they accept Jesus Christ, they repent and they trust him for his, their salvation, or they've rejected him at that moment. Now, maybe maybe three weeks down the road, the conversation that you had is going to be part of what causes them not to reject Christ in that moment. But at least when they've walked away from you, they have rejected Christ. And like I said, I wonder how often it is that they reject Christ because we never properly or even at all offered him to them. Right. I mean, that brings up a really good question as to whether or not we're just used to when we speak about Christ and we're trying to introduce him, whether we're actually talking about the doctrines of Christ or Christ himself. Yeah. And whether we're actually expressing that it's not just about a transaction, like you need to have your sins forgiven. And isn't it horrible that you're going to spend eternity separated from God and in kind of eternal punishment? All, again, all of that is absolutely true. But if I can see if that were the whole presentation, it can come across as very flat sometimes. And yeah. what we really should be driving at is you're getting union with God. And it, this is, in some respects, this idea of relationship, not to overemphasize, but that there is something special and powerful about that relationship, which confers all the other blessings. But when we just move into, you know, don't you want to be forgiven? And, you know, it's all the old uh, argument of saying to somebody, well, Jesus died for you. And then the person saying, well, I didn't ask him to. And yeah. why? Why did he? Uh, so it's this idea of, you know, there is power in this kind of preaching. And another interesting thing that I think Dr. Beakey correlates is this connection between the work of the Spirit and this Christ knowledge. So this is what he says on page 64. The work of the Spirit in the hearts of men is directly connected to the knowledge of Christ, which goes along with his argument of saying, if you're not being preached Christ— then they actually, the work of the Holy Spirit is impeded in a sense because the Holy Spirit is, of course, to elaborate on that knowledge of Christ, bring it into fruit, bring it into fruit, bring it into clarity so that it can bear fruit. And so I, I thought that was like a wonderful way to emphasize why this preaching is so important and why Christ's knowledge in particular, we should always be growing and trying to continue to gather and garner more knowledge about uh, Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I really like how he made this connection between preaching Christ and preaching the sovereignty of God. So seamless. I think that's something that, um, really takes a keen theological mind to make the clear connection between cr preaching Christ and offering Christ, but you're offering Christ as the King of a kingdom right. and you're offering Christ not just uh, as your savior, but as the king. And, he, you know, he connects it to the, 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 the Munich triplets, but that connection, every kingdom has a king and a king who's not a sovereign is not a very good king. A king whose kingdom is out of his control isn't really ruling and reigning that kingdom. So right. I really liked how he made that connection um, and how he drew that out, because I think that's something that a lot of Calvinists, you know, we've talked about it, how sometimes Calvinists swing so far to, um, the extreme that we actually become the caricature that the Armenians accuse us of being. And I think part of that is that we don't make this connection between God's sovereignty and Christ's lordship. Like we don't, we don't draw right. that line between those two concepts and we really need to. So I really appreciated how he brought that out in this chapter. Yeah. It does such a good job of really expressing God's sovereignty as his rule 
this absolute freedom to accomplish his purposes outside of any exogenous force. And that's one of the things that the Reformed tradition is particularly good at, I think, is keeping that consistent all the way through the understanding of how we see Christ, both in his in his you know current reign, but also his first advent on earth, his power over everything. You know, I, I was just thinking recently as I was reading in, I think it's Luke, maybe Luke 2, where um, is it? It's Peter's mother-in-law who has the fever, right? Yeah. At one point, it's definitely yeah, not just, Luke 2, but it is Peter's mother-in-law you're thinking of. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's Luke 2. It might be Luke 2 or 3. Anyway, I love that little passage because it's, it's almost like it borders on the edge of throwaway because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, yeah. they went to uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's home. It was in the evening. All the sick were brought to Jesus. And that almost seems like, well, that's the main point of this little account here is that all the sick came and he healed them. But what happens before that where he just, he comes and he heals her. What I find so interesting because, you know, Luke is a doctor and Greek is a very specific language, but the word they're used to, of course, indicate that Jesus has healed is actually rebuked. He rebukes the fever. Why use the word rebuke, especially as a doctor, if what you mean is heal. And so here we have Christ demonstrating his sovereignty, even over like molecular structure in atoms and cells. That's not just that he heals it as if like a doctor applying a salve or something or some kind of medication, but he can actually tell the fever, get the heck out. Right, And so there's like an immense amount of power at the smallest level that, of course, if it happens there, then it could be extrapolated at any larger level. And yeah. so I, I was thinking, I couldn't help but think about that as he was talking about Christ and then the sovereignty of God. It's just For me, I just love that. There's something about that. Like, I just love that Jesus comes and he rebukes the fever. Yeah. And, and it's um, even, you know, to sort of reinforce that point out of that passage the next thing that happens, right, is, and she got up and served them. Yes. So like, so, so anyone who might look at that and think like, oh, well, that's just kind of a throwaway point that that's rebuke versus heal or cure or whatever. The, the logical conclusion of Christ acting on behalf of exercising his lordship to claim this woman's life and act on her behalf, the consequence of that, and the only reasonable consequence is that she serves Jesus. And so that, that right there is like a picture of it. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but since I've started reading this book, um, I've noticed that I read the scripture differently because I'm thinking in some of these kind of experiential categories. And a lot of times my thought process is like, I notice something and then I'm like, how, how would I preach that experientially? How would I bring the meaning of the text to bear on? I usually think about it in the context of like my church. Um, but how, how would I bring the context to bear on a congregation that I was preaching to? And it, it really has shaped the way that I read the scripture because I don't think I've ever thought of the scripture as like a dry, dusty book, like some people have struggled with, but this has really brought it to life that this, you know, the old uh, burlapped cashmere song, right? Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. But (laughs) like, there's a certain (laughs) level of that, that I think this book has reinvigorated in a practical reformed way that the Bible really is practical instructions for living, right? The, um, the, the Puritan definition, I think it was Perkins, but the Puritan definition of systematic theology is like the art of living godly, like the art of godly living, or like the art of applying practical divine wisdom, like theology, systematic theology was seen by some of our reformed heroes in the faith as the most practical of all sciences. And I think sometimes we think about it as sort of like this abstract thing. And then now with the fact that we've, we've got like exegetical courses that are so much more focused on like the mechanics of the scripture than they are on the actual meaning of the scripture. Yes. Um, 
I think we've really lost the fact that the scripture really is meant to be read and applied, not just digested. Um, and this book has really helped me sort of see that in, through in a different light. This writing has been re- very refreshing in that way. Yeah. And that's what moves him. You're exactly right, Dr. Beaky, from this idea of, okay, let's talk about preaching Christ and then preaching the sovereignty of God. And out of those two things, just like with Simon's mother-in-law, when we see Jesus come close and his rule and reign is brought to bear and we are witnesses of that and changed by it, then we get reformed spirituality because yep. at its root, the reform movement was actually a pursuit of holiness in personal church and national life. And that's something I think I'm often prone to forget because I often think, well, you know, the reformation was primarily about, you know, like, you know, punching the Catholic church in the neck and getting everything back on course. But what is the point of being on course if all that is, again, to have a lot of head knowledge? So I love that yeah. he quotes Calvin in this way in, the, in this chapter. And he's quoting Calvin. He says, indeed, we shall not say that properly speaking, God is known where there's no religion of piety. So there's this wonderful discussion of the fact that there should be no walls between doctrine of life and doctrine and life. And he starts by talking about something that I think this is good for everybody who's not a preacher to read because he discusses the importance of the holiness of the preacher. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a really intimidating thought for people who are going into the pulpit, like yes. <laughs> not just for those going into ordained ministry, which it, it's, it's even a higher level of intimidation, I would imagine for, for that. Um, but I know from my limited experience and you've preached a little bit at your church or exhorted or whatever word we want to use, that's not technically preaching, you've addressed the congregation from the pulpit. And I know like the first time I did it, I'm, I have no problem with public speaking, right? You could put me in a room in front of a thousand people, give me a topic on the fly and I could do just fine. Like I could give a 40 minute presentation without much, much struggle. Like it just doesn't intimidate me. I totally but the believe first, that. The first time that I went into the pulpit, I almost passed out. Like I almost hyperventilated and passed out. I actually had to stop in the middle of a sentence and like close my eyes and, and like slow down because it it really was, there's this gravity to it of opening God's word and addressing God's people. And although I'm not preaching and so I'm not, not filling that same prophetic role that an ordained minister does every week, there's still an element of prophetic ministry that's happening, maybe like lowercase p in a different way, because you really are taking God's word and applying it to the people in front of you in a way that's different than what happens. So, so knowing going into that, like knowing that your life is on display and that your own personal holiness, if you don't, if you're not on point with your personal holiness, if you are allowing sin to like dwell in your life, um, it really, it'll really mess you up and it'll mess the people you're preaching to up too. So I really appreciate that he, he said this and in a preaching manual, it's actually kind of gutsy to say like, Hey, your personal piety and your personal holiness, like it matters as a pastor that you live a life of holiness. I think we all know that, but it takes a certain amount of gusto to actually like put it in print and say, all right, everybody read my preaching manual. Uh, by the way, you need to be holy people or you're going to screw up your congregation. So stop being unholy people. Um, I really respected the courage that that took. And he's not just speaking about holiness or piety in this passive sense, but he's really getting after if you are not pursuing it. So it's not just mm-hmm. good enough to avoid sin, but that you're actually moving forward day by day in relationship with Christ and understanding what it means to be united with him in a growing relationship that is maturing, 
then yeah. your ministry is likely to be ineffective. And what was particularly meaningful for me is a quote that he cites from E.M. Bounds on what he considers to be a causal relationship between the holiness of the preacher and the effectiveness of his ministry. And, and this yeah. is the quote, the preacher is more than the sermon. All the preacher says is tinctured, impregnated by what the preacher is. The sermon is forceful because the man is forceful. The sermon is holy because the man is holy. The sermon is full of divine unction because the man is full of divine unction. The sermon cannot rise in its life-giving forces above the man. I mean, yeah. when I read that, I was like, man, I just need to stop and pray for all the pastors I know right yeah. now because that way, and I think this is what's important for us as you know, non-capital P preaching people is to really love on our pastors because they do have a different sense of responsibility. It's not just that what they're saying is important and that it needs to be well thought out and it should be as precise, theologically precise as possible. And again, they have the burden of really ministering and preaching from the heart to the hearts of their people, but that it's clear that ministry will be ineffective where the pastor and the preacher is ineffective in their pursuit of holiness. And, you know, I think of how hard it is for me, how difficult it is for me to pursue holiness where I do not have the, the, the express responsibility for the shepherding of other people's hearts. And then yeah. I think, man, given everything that pastors have to do, you know, all the annoyances they have to put up with, including me, that they, in spite of all that, really need to be consistently you know, chasing after the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their hearts in authentic ways is just beyond me. Because I think we've, I don't know if you've had this experience. I certainly have. I'll be honest, totally candid. And that is sometimes it's easy to think that even if you had a week in which you really were separated from fellowship and harmony with God, that by, just by way of skill, that you can pull off something on the Lord's day that is going to be effective. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly been there. I think that we can get lulled in the sense of we can kind of hide behind the fact that we can be well-polished in our interactions. And that somehow, if that will be good enough for God just to bless it, it doesn't God want to bless it anyway, because this is his people and he wants to administer and, and meet them where they're at. And the answer is no, not yeah. if the preacher is not pursuing a personal sense and commitment to piety and to discipleship. It just won't happen. And like you said, that's like a really bold thing for him to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it it really does underscore the seriousness of the topic, because I think, um, you know, I think we do sometimes miss what preaching is, right? I don't think that I had ever heard a real in-depth theological explanation of what preaching is until well after I was out of seminary. So I didn't take preaching courses in seminary. So maybe they did this during, um, during those courses, but I never heard any of my friends reflect on it. And as they were talking about their assignments, I don't remember any of that. It was all about the mechanics of homiletics. And the first time that I really understood, and I remember it was a lecture by Carl Truman. He talked about how, when the pastor gets in the pulpit, he is not in, in the sense of like an altar Christus, like the, the Roman Catholic model, but he is really, he is the, the, um, the messenger sent from God to address these people. So just like in ancient times, 
when the messenger would come from the king, they were afforded all the respect of the king. And to kill a king's messenger was treated as though you, you had placed an attack on the king himself. Right. And so that's that's the idea behind the word euangelion, right? This is, this is a, a pastor coming and proclaiming the word of God on Christ's behalf. He's confronting you with Christ's message. And it is as if Christ himself stands in front of you, not because the pastor, by some special feature of his ordination has stepped into the role of Christ, but because the pastor has come preaching the very word of God from the scriptures, and he is carrying with him divine sanction and unction to do so. And so for me to really understand the gravity of that, that underscores the gravity of the need for holiness on the part of preachers. Because if the messenger comes just like the messenger was afforded all the dignity of the king, the messenger was expected to carry himself with all the dignity of a king. And so the messenger would use the same kind of high, sort of highbrow language as the king. They would wear nice clothes like the king. They would they would carry themselves in royal uh, royal ways, even though they were not a royal themselves. In the same sense, the pastor should be striving as he preaches the word to carry with him all of the holiness of Christ. Now, we all, we, we all fall short of that, and no pastor right. on earth can ever accomplish that, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, is that the Holy Spirit honors the attempt of the pastor to live a holy life and sanctifies that pastor, setting him apart for the, the purpose of ministry in a way that compensates for... Um, the the natural inabilities that the pastor has. But the Holy Spirit is not going to compensate for our lack of attempt, for our lack of striving at holiness. Exactly. Just like he doesn't in the life of a believer, right? If I'm not striving for holiness, I shouldn't expect fruit from the Holy Spirit to just manifest itself you know, apart from my own effort. But that doesn't mean that my effort uh, has to be perfect in order to bear fruit. Because the Holy Spirit bears fruit in me not because of what I'm doing, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. But he still, he, we still have to strive in order for the Holy Spirit to bring about that fruit. Not in like a synergistic sense, but the Holy Spirit is not going to do something that we ourselves are not committed to doing. Right. Exactly. And Dr. Beakey doesn't let the rest of us get off easy in this chapter because right. he talks as well about the holiness of the people and how this is also required. And that was also part of good preaching. And he right. goes right into that wonderful reform spectrum where he talks about reformed spirituality, affirming the holiness of ordinary life and aims to fill the entire domain of activity with the glory of Christ. And how and really questions whether or not we are actually pursuing that on a regular basis. Because yeah. I think one of the things, if you're going to say, well, I'm reformed, you're also saying something about your commitment to your own ordinary activity by way of its spiritual connection to being united with Christ. Like if we're truly united with Christ, that means all the things that we do, including flossing our teeth, has in some way been redeemed to such an extent that it glorifies God if we mean it to. If we are, if we, and we should always be aware that whatever we're doing is working toward that aim. So I love that he doesn't let us get off. It's not just like, well, I'm addressing pastors here, but don't worry about everybody else who's outside the scope of professional or vocational yeah. ministry. There's no real impact here in the Reformed tradition. He wraps it all together. And he quotes Zechariah 14, which is one of my favorite verses for two reasons. One, it's just a great verse. Second, it's also the name of a song on the new Me Without You album, which is just fantastic music. I know you agree. Um, and that... <laughs> really? Really? That, Raspberries I, I on can't that? Stand, I can't stand Me Without You. <laughs> I just can't. Either talk or sing. 
talk or sing. Don't no, do this weird beauty. talk. You get, no, no, you no. Get both. Let you you need a new definition of beauty, my friend. You get talk both or sing. Unity and diversity. It's beautiful. No, it's just not. I'm just saying. Go but get the, your wife. Bring her on the show. We'll see who's right. <laughs> You'd probably have her support on this one. That's for I'm sure. I'm sure that I would. Yeah. But I love the verse that he quotes, which reads, And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Like what a, what a beautiful image of what it means for all of work, all of life, all of activity to be brought into the scope of seeking personal piety and all those things. Like yeah. I, the more I just read this, the more I'm just convicted. This is of course the way that life was always meant to be lived. And to just get a small taste of this by way of pursuing it through the power of the Holy spirit is what God requires of every person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's, what's best about this section is how all encompassing it is. Right. So right. a lot of times you get this, this focus on holiness. That's like, well, the way that we become holy people is by reading our Bibles in the morning and doing our devotions. And then we yes. kind of like get off the hook with that. It's like, okay, well, I did my my 10 minutes of Bible reading. I said a couple quick prayers. If I'm really spiritual, then maybe I sang a song or something like that. Um, but then like the rest of my day, I don't have to worry about it because I checked that off the box. But what I found most compelling and convicting about this is just how all-encompassing this vision of reformed spirituality really is. It's not just get up and read your Bible, right? It's not, it's not, um, make sure you pray. It's also, um, make sure that you're stewarding your time appropriately for the glory of God. Make sure that you're generous with your money in, in giving to God honoring ways. Um, it really is a, a kind of a comprehensive vision for not just Christian piety, but for Christian life and those, how those two things should not be separate, right? When we say Christian piety and we say Christian life in the reformed paradigm, we should be, those two things should be synonymous because exactly. all of life is piety and all of piety should be expressed in all of our life. And I think that that's, again, one of those things that we miss kind of coming into this into this more confessional historical reform perspective that, that you and I are growing in and that hopefully our listeners are growing in as, as we go through this, it really is this all consuming spiritual life that, that the reformers were going after. There's no part of life that God doesn't lay claim to, and there's no part of life that we can kind of squirrel away to, to remain secularized. Right. That was that was the beauty of breaking down the division between sacred and secular is not that now everything is secular, but now everything is sacred, including right. the way that I floss my teeth or the way that I manage my money or the way that I drive to work. All of those things are to be done for the glory of God and unto the glory of God. And that necessarily means that there's a way to do them that glorifies God versus a way to do them that doesn't glorify God. It's almost too easy to think of piety or holiness as these spiritual disciplines right. that we somehow act upon. And usually, of course, they're done in private. And usually they avoid, or avoid. usually they involve some communion in a sense of you know, reading the scriptures or praying. But I almost get think of what 
Dr. Beaky might be driving at here is that maybe we need to think that perhaps the holiest minutes of our day are not necessarily the ones we spend reading the Bible, but right. the ones in which we spend actually acting out what the Bible tells us about the word in flesh, living out in such a likewise manner, as you said, kind of being Christ's emissary in our places of work when we're interacting with the person that really annoys the heck out of us. Right. You know, th this is where I think that the piety is really proved out. And so it shouldn't be like, because I think we've all run into people where we've thought, uh, this just happened to me recently, actually. I was with somebody and they told me that uh, they thought, well, I'll say it this way. They said to me that this other person that was a mutual acquaintance of ours was a Christian. And I was totally shocked by that because the behavior that I know of this right. person did not at all match that description. And they went on to say, oh, no, no, I know like this person, for instance, uh, is like a big reader of the Bible. I see them reading the Bible on a, on a regular basis. And I was just like, wow. And then I yeah. thought immediately, that very well could be me. Like I need to be yeah. careful that I don't get into that place by giving myself this false sense that because I said a certain prayer or because I, I read the Valley of Vision that day or because the quote unquote Devo time was like particularly rich or rewarding yeah. or a little bit extra that I'm somehow thinking that, well, I'm growing in my piety. Like it really, that's all for naught. If it's not actually manifest in behavior that actually seeks to love God with everything I am. And then of course, by extension, love my neighbor as myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that it really does bear some self-reflection, right? Because there are a lot of times that we fail to represent Christ appropriately. And it, sure. it's not just like, oh, well, I, I lost my temper and swore the other day, but it's more like, um, I've exhibited a pattern of a lack of patience with this particular coworker, right. or I have consistently taken um, a fork from the dining room, even though there's a sign that says no free forks, right? Like it's the little things like that, or the seemingly little things that we don't even think about that when those things start to become things that you pay attention to, I think that is one of the markers of a maturing faith in Christ. When you start to see how, how pervasive God's demands for holiness are on our whole life, how the 10 commandments don't just govern these 10 discrete actions that we might commit, but instead are 10 principles that govern all of morality for all of our lives. Right. I, most time I don't think about the fact that if I, um, if I take an extra cup because I don't want my coffee cup to be too hot. So I take a second right. cup. Well, there's a big sign that says no free cup. So every time I do that, I'm not just I'm not just violating that sign, but I'm actually sinning against the Lord of the universe who's commanded yes. me not to steal. So we really like a truly reformed piety is not about this might sort of this might sort of anger some of my TR friends, truly reformed friends like exclusive psalmody versus not exclusive psalmody oh, is not the go. definition. That's not the definition of what it means to be truly reformed. Right. To be Agreed. truly reformed is to be living a life that is reformed and being reformed by the scripture in conformity with God's revealed moral will. Right. So yes, we can have some interesting discussions and yes, it's important whether or not God has commanded us to sing Psalms only or to sing Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs and not Psalm, Psalms and Psalmy, Psalm, Psalms. Right. <laughs> you could say that about just about any of the like major intramural reform debates that people people draw the line as like this is what it means to be reformed. But in reality, right. being reformed is an all-encompassing vision of the Christian life. 
and it involves striving for holiness. It's funny because uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is known for saying that if you don't get accused of be, being an antinomian, um, that you you probably have not preached the doctrines of grace fully, right? right. Um, I actually think that if you don't get accused of being a legalist on a fairly regular basis, that you're probably not taking God's law seriously enough. Yeah, I hear that. Because in reality, if you if you take the time to really consider how God's law applies to a particular thing, a particular um, particular moral question, somebody is going to accuse you of legalism. Because right. in evangelicalism and the new the new Calvinist movement that spawned out of evangelicalism, um, concern for God's law is not that much of a priority. And that's, that's just a reality is that freedom from the law is conceptualized as freedom, uh, to not worry about the law and what freedom from the law really is from a biblical perspective is the freedom to not be condemned by the law, which allows us to pursue conformity to the law without impunity. Right. And that's, that's the reform vision for life. And I think we just get so caught up in some of these other important, but ultimately non-decisive debates about the reformed world that I think a lot of times we just miss the boat entirely that reformed theology is about a reformed life of being conformed to the image of Christ. And we just miss that entirely. And I think this last section of the chapter, which emphasizes the holiness of the congregation in reformed spirituality, really, it really just brought that all together for me in a way that I hadn't really conceptualized before. All of Reformed theology, I think, is for me summed up in two words, serious grace. There's mm -hmm. the grace of God, which saves us. So like you said, the impunity of the law is no longer, um, you know, an issue. At the same time, it is serious in the sense that we recognize who God is and we fear him. We, we have reason to be afraid. And yet at the same time, he has graciously through Jesus Christ uh, saved us from that kind yeah. of, from the punishment, from fear of punishment. So, I, I mean, I just love that. I think what we're, we're driving at, what so many are coming back to is the fact that what God says when we take him at his word, it matters. It's worth being serious about in a way that says, I'm serious about this because I love him. And so therefore that is the best kind of seriousness, not the kind that tries to aesthetically please God or being serious about trying to earn by some kind of meritorious favor, what we can only get through Christ. But it's this idea that, again, because I love him, because I'm united with him, of course, I'm going to be serious about my relationship with him. And therefore, I want to obey him in that kind of love. I want to worship him in the way that he requires and he sets forth. Because as one of worth that is beyond expression, of course, I want to do what he says. And of course, I want to yeah. honor him in the way that he requires. There's one other thing that kind of comes out as a spoke from this conversation that I want to get your perspective on because I absolutely loved this. And I think we should take a second just to brag on and encourage deacons everywhere because Beaky unpacks several things which we just do not have the time to talk about in terms of what is cultivated in the lives of God's people when Reformed preaching happens. And one of those things is the spirituality of works of mercy. And yeah. he particularly highlights the deacons and he gives yeah. a lot of encouragement there. And what I loved, I think this would be a great way to close our conversation, is he speaks about the importance of deacons on page 72, and he says this, the office of deacon is not a stepping stone to pastoral leadership. In the Reformed tradition, the role of a deacon is a distinct calling to lead the church in serving the poor and to care for the widow and orphan. 
And I was just floored by that because I was like, yeah, that's right. That's right on. Like, it's not like a little lesser office, but we're prone to think of it like that. You know, like there's yeah. deacons. Then maybe if you got, you're a really good deacon and you've been proved there, you become, you can become an elder. But I love this idea of being called to lead the church by example in that position in a serious way. Like it's not just about taking offering or handing out bulletins, but there is like a real call on the heart of somebody who is passionate about doing these things and then showing others what it looks like to do them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, I've reflected on what it means to be a deacon in a more focused way, obviously, in the last, I don't know, it's been almost a year now since I was elected as a deacon at the church here. And one of the things that I've learned um, is that being a deacon, the real blessing in being a deacon is in doing things that nobody even notices. Mm. So like, um, we do, you know, we do like deacons reports at our quarterly business meetings and I have to admit, it feels a little bit weird to like report on all the stuff that I've done over the last year, um, or the last quarter, because what I should be doing and what, what should be happening is that I should just be taking care of the stuff behind the scenes. So the pastor could focus on study. Like that's, that's the, if you boil down the biblical ministry of the deacon, it's to take care of the practical needs of the church so right. that the pastor, the elders, the teaching ministry of the church is not hindered by um, attempting to fulfill that function of the church, right? The church is called to fulfill the temporal needs of first and foremost, its members, and secondarily, in, in so much as it can, the temporal needs of the poor and oppressed around us, right? Do good to all people, especially to those in the household of believers. And so in a church where there's not an active diaconal ministry, um, the pastor is compelled to do that because it's it's not it's not optional for the church to do that. And so if there's not a dedicated person to do it, the pastor is kind of stuck with it. And so for me, it's been a real blessing as a deacon to sort of find ways to do that, right? So when the furnace goes crazy, then the pastor doesn't have to spend two days away from study to come over and take care of it because the deacons can take care of that. Right. I mean, it's a little different too, because I live here, but but if that's the role of the deacon is would be to take time off work to come and accomplish that. So the pastor doesn't have to interrupt his study to do that so that the preaching of the word is not hindered by these temporal needs of the church. So I really appreciated that. I mean, it, it, it was interesting to sort of reflect on it in, in my current perspective versus how I might've looked at it a year and a half ago when I wasn't a deacon. Um, but I really appreciated that he brought that out. How do you think your perspective has changed given what we've read here, but also like you said, having now been in that role for a while and assumed that ministry, what was like the biggest change in how you think, think about it? I mean, I think for me, um, it's, it, the biggest change has been that the theology has feet now. So, you know, before I I had the same basic theological understanding of what the office of deacon was, the ministry of a deacon, but now seeing and feeling, um, you know, when, when, when pastor preaches and I can tell that he's had enough time to study that week and he doesn't, you know, sometimes when your pastor preaches, like you can kind of feel that he's a little less put together than, than most of the time. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah. Where you just, you can just tell that he didn't get as much study time as he wanted. Um, you know, sometimes it's, he's more tentative in his conclusions or, um, you can just sort of sense it. And so there's a part of it where it's like when that happens, which it doesn't happen very often, dad is very diligent in his studies, but when that happens and you can kind of sense that something's a little off, um, 
I take that to heart more now because there's a part of me that steps back and goes, is there something as a deacon that I should have been accomplishing that the pastor felt that he needed to take care of instead of me taking care of it as part of my role? Um, which most of the time I think, um, I haven't felt that there was, um, you know, but, but knowing that, that the teaching ministry of the church is in some part reliant on the diaconal ministry of the church in order to be effective the way it's supposed to, right? The, the apostle said, far be it from us to, um, to, you know, to take ourselves away from the teaching of the ministry of the word and the prayers to wait on tables. Right. So in some ways, the, the teaching ministry of the church relies on the diaconal ministry to accomplish those other tasks. Um, and so for me, just that having feet, having legs and actually living it has been the biggest change. I don't know that there's been any major theological changes um, or theological perspective shifts since I've taken the office of deacon. Um but it's it's been a, a learning experience to sort of attend to the physical needs of the church in a way that I haven't hadn't had to in the past. Right on. Well, I think this has pretty much been the definitive discussion of chapter three <laughs> of Reformed Preaching by Joel Beakey. I think Beakey's. it's the only one. I think we really scooped the whole world on this. Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely scooped everybody on this bad boy. <laughs> Which reminds me, two things. First is that if you haven't gotten a copy of the book, you really should. So go out to WTSbooks.com. That's the Westminster Bookstore. We'd love for you to support them. Grab a yeah. copy for yourself. It's a really, I know we say this all the time, like this is now our go-to word, I think because you introduced it. But now this is my go-to word when I describe uh, good looking <laughs> books. It's a handsome volume, is it not? It really is. It really is. It's the, very the, handsome. It, Peter Voss style is so good. It is so you good. Sometimes I look it. at this book and I just think, you are so good looking. You know, I am a little, I feel a little awkward right now. I'm uh, <laughs> a little uncomfortable. Um, I was going to say most of the time I throw the dust jacket of books away, like immediately. Uh, but this one keeps the dust jacket cause it's just such a good looking cover art. Yeah. It's beautiful. I'm actually surprised we've gotten in 128 or 148, depending on what you want to count episodes and not discuss this. You're throwing away your dust jackets, like just straight up. Oh out yeah. Of the gate? I hate dust jackets. They're such really? a waste. Yeah. I wish that publishers didn't even use them. Oh man, I feel like I this, just is a throw big, them away. this is a big divide among readers. The dust jacket, dust jacket thing. I keep them all. Yeah, no. I feel like I'm betraying the book. Like the book has a jacket, literally. I can't just strip it bare and let it sit naked on the shelf. That's exactly what you do. <laughs> That's exactly what you do. I consider the dust jacket to be part of the wrapping of the book. What? So sometimes if I know I'm not going to get to a book for a long time, so like sometimes you get a book and you just know it's, it's going to take a while before you get to it. Yeah. Sometimes I'll leave the dust jacket on until I'm actually ready to get into the book. But for me, the dust jacket gets in the way because like I carry books in my backpack and stuff like that. And the dust jacket just gets all jacked up anyways. So you just got naked books lying everywhere. Oh yeah, for sure. Naked books everywhere. That's going to be a sound clip. That's going to come back to haunt me someday. <laughs> I so, can't take so, that back. I could. I'm not, I could edit that out, but I'm not going to. Oh, no. This is live. Second thing, speaking of books, again, I want to remind everybody, go check out RefTunes and the Kickstarter there. Yes, help absolutely. A, help a brother out. We'll put a link in the show notes, but that's going to be another epic book. And I'm guessing doesn't have a dust jacket, so that's right up your alley. You won't have to it's even true. strip it. 
It's true. I hate dust jackets. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I won't apologize. I'm not sorry. Down with dust jackets. I know. I will. I feel like I want to rescue. Like, let me rescue your jackets. Like, whatever you don't want, I'll just take them and give them a nice home here. Do you just have like a stack of dust jackets somewhere? <laughs> no, but they I, stay on I your just, books, right? They do. I am. I'm yeah, a big I just, no. dust jacket guy. No, I, I understand your issue in that, you know, if you're traveling with the book, it can be not cumbersome, but I understand it gets in the way and it can get banged up. But I also kind of feel like that is its express purpose. Like, let it do its thing. It wants to so badly protect the beautiful cover and binding of that book. So let it take, let it bear the weight. Let it take the punishment and the pain. See, my take on it is almost precisely the opposite. Is <laughs> Really? Um, I don't, I actually think like dust jackets, the art on a dust jacket can be really distracting. So like, I'm kind of a stickler for like things looking as uniform as possible. And most books, if you take the dust jacket off, look basically the same as other books. So for me, there's an aesthetic to it, but I also actually find there's a lot of books that have second commandment violations all over the cover. So I get rid of the dust jackets because then I don't have to worry about that. Well, that's a legit reason. I totally get that. I totally get that. So I appreciate the uh, Jesus juking me on that and just going straight to second commandment <laughs> violation. I was just thinking about it. I mean, it's that's the worst when you have a book because you're like, what do I do with this book now? Do I like? I thought you were about to be like, or? well, if you're truly reformed and totally reformed, you get rid of the dust jacket. Yeah, you definitely do. Yeah, somewhere out there, somebody's saying a hearty amen. <laughs> and somebody is also throwing their phone at the wall. <laughs> yes, so, exactly. Someone this is, is something we're not. This is not the definitive discussion on dust jackets. No, that's I, I'm never sure this happen. is. I know this has been like an epic, epic debate. So cut to like all the people who are like lovingly caressing their dust jackets right now, including me. I'm actually touching the one on this book. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jesse. I think that we've derailed. We're well past an hour now. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.